Thank you for tuning into this special presentation of the novel The Dead Kids Club by Rich Hosek, read for you in its entirety on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs Fiction Podcast. The Dead Kids Club is what I like to call an everyman thriller, ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. It follows a divorced couple after the death of their son and asks the question, what would you do if the killer of your child got away with it? How far would you go to get the justice you deserve? the revenge you need, and how will you know when you're done? The complete book will be serialized over the next several months, between my usual short story episodes. I caution you that unlike most of the content on this podcast, The Dead Kids Club is a gritty thriller depicting scenes of graphic violence and mild sexual content, so if you're sensitive to that type of material, you've been warned. Please visit bedtimestories.studio to subscribe to my mailing list so you don't miss any chapters of this unabridged audio presentation and news about my upcoming thriller, The Tenth Ride. And now, Part 1 of The Dead Kids Club by Rich Hosek. Nick. 1. I pull into the drop-off lane of the elementary school. Ahead of me are bright blue skies, but as I look in the rearview mirror to check on my six-year-old son, Nick, I can see dark, roiling clouds out the back window. Nick, as usual, is staring out the side window as he sits perched in his booster. We're here, I tell him. He unbuckles his seatbelt as one of the drop-off lane volunteers opens the door for him. Have a good day, I say. You too, he replies. He grabs his backpack, jumps out of the car, and rushes off to join the other first graders as they funnel into the school. I pull away and check my watch. Late again, but if I make a couple of lights on the way, I should get to the office in time for my first meeting. A familiar voice shouts, Dad! Dad! I check my rearview mirror and see Nick running toward me. I turn around and notice the lunch bag sitting on the back seat next to his booster. I pull over. An engine roars. A car horn blares. A woman screams. There's a sickening thud. I get out of my car looking around to see what the commotion is all about. I don't see Nick. There's a car on the sidewalk. The driver stands beside it, confused. Something is wrong. Where's Nick? He was just there. I walk toward the school, scanning the kids for his bright red shirt. Then I see it. He's curled up on the grass. A yellow-vested crossing guard leans over him, a look of horror on her face. I rush over. Sounds flood in. Screams, shouts, crying. Nick lies on his side. I turn him over. Blood trickles out from the corner of his mouth. His eyes open for a moment and look at me. I want my mom, he manages to say with his last breath. Someone screams, a wail of anguish that overpowers the approaching sirens. That someone is me. 2. Rebecca bursts into the emergency department. She spots me sitting across the room. I look at her and mouth the words, I'm sorry. She shakes her head as she walks toward me. No, no, she says. Where is he? I want to see him. Where is my son? I stand and walk toward her. A uniformed police officer standing by the entrance to the treatment area shoots me a glance. I answer with a barely perceptible nod. Rebecca looks around furtively for someone who can help her. Someone who has answers. I reach her and awkwardly hold up my arms for an embrace. She raises her hands in front of her, defensively. I put a hand on her elbow instead, 
and steer her toward the waiting officer. He opens the doors for us and I lead her down a corridor. Her breathing grows more labored with each step we take. At the end of the hall is a room. Through a large glass window, she spies the child-shaped lump under a green sheet on a gurney inside. Rebecca's whole body shakes as she sobs. A nurse arrives. She opens the door and lets us into the room. We gather around the gurney. Rebecca grabs hold of my arm as the nurse pulls the sheet back. Nick lies face up, still and peaceful under the green fabric. Someone was thoughtful enough to wipe the blood away from his mouth, but he doesn't look right. He always slept on his side, hugging a stuffed animal. Rebecca moves to him, places a hand on his cheek. She leans over and kisses him on the forehead. Then she straightens up and turns to me. I brace myself for a barrage of accusations and blame. I imagine her fists pounding against my chest as she demands an explanation of how I could let this happen to her son. Instead, she embraces me and whispers in my ear, I forgive you. 3. The funeral is a blur. The burial takes place on a sunny, unseasonably hot day. Afterward, friends and family and dozens of people I barely know or have never met saunter through my mother's house offering condolences and food. I see Rebecca only briefly. Neither of us knows the etiquette for how divorced parents should behave at their child's funeral. A month later, we stand silently at the site of Nick's death, while a marble birdbath is dedicated to his memory. His teachers and friends share their remembrances, but neither Rebecca nor I can bring ourselves to say a word. I don't see or talk with her for another six months, not until the trial begins. The rookie district attorney is confident. Open and shut case, she tells us. He'll take a plea and spend the next ten-plus years behind bars. Despite her assurances, the case goes to trial. The driver of the car that killed Nick, Anthony Vitale, sits behind the defendant's table while his slick lawyer dances circles around the assistant DA. We watch him sway the jury with emotional arguments and artful manipulations. The witnesses recount the horror of that day, and then he plants doubt in their minds questioning their own previously vivid memories that seemed so fresh just moments before. It's my turn on the stand. I tell the jury what happened. My voice cracks as I describe Nick's last moments. The assistant district attorney thanks me, and Vitaly's defense attorney rises to his feet. I can feel Rebecca's stare burning into me as that slick, charismatic attorney co-ops my grief, telling the gallery and the jury that they can't possibly know the outrage and despair that I feel. Who can blame me for wanting to hold someone responsible for this senseless accident? The remainder of the trial feels like a comedy of errors. The hapless ADA loses motion after motion. The fact that Vitaly's blood alcohol was above the legal limit at 8 a.m. gets suppressed. His suspended license and previous DUI citations are disallowed from being introduced as evidence. The jury hears only how his politically connected father rallied the community to replace the faulty traffic signals at his personal expense. The jury is out for less than an hour before arriving at a verdict. Not guilty. Anthony Vitale breathes a sigh of relief. His lawyer slaps him on the back, and he turns around to the gallery and gives a woman, whom I assume is his girlfriend, a kiss and a hug with a smug, satisfied smile on his face. A smile. The cocky bastard. Rebecca squeezes my hand. I look over at the jury. A few of them look our way, pity in their eyes, maybe a touch of empathy, but... None of them know what we're feeling. If they did, Vitaly would not be walking out of the courtroom, 
passing us without even a glance, without the slightest bit of remorse or regret. I can't move. I can't even breathe. Is this real? I close my eyes, and the sights and sounds of the courtroom disappear. I hear Nick's musical laugh, hear him talk to his stuffed animals and that funny voice, hear him say, Good night, I love you, pleasant dreams, as I tuck him in. But that is merely a brief daydream. There is a coffin not far from this courthouse, buried in the ground, with a marble stone, the same marble as the birdbath, upon which is chiseled his name and the dates marking his all-too-short life. And in that coffin is our son. My heart screams. Rebecca lays her head on my shoulder, and I can feel her body shaking with sobs. The divorce several years ago was hard, but through it all I always told myself I had no regrets and would do it all again exactly the same way to make sure I had Nick in my life. Now I don't know what my life was for. To work for a company that distributed sporting goods? To watch television, barbecue on the weekends, and maybe golf once in a while? Was any of that important? Some people live their lives without children and seem perfectly happy. I am not one of them. A kindly bailiff approaches. You'll need to clear the courtroom. I'm sorry. I'm very sorry, she tells us. I look at her and offer a forced smile. I don't think there will ever be another moment of genuine happiness in my life again. But this woman has been kind to us throughout the court proceedings, has always managed to convey a sense of sympathy and caring through her actions and words that no one else in this so-called justice system seems to possess. I rise and help Rebecca to her feet. Our hands entwine, and we walk in silence to the parking lot. Neither one of us can think of a thing to say as I drive her back to her apartment. She has never returned to the house she shared with Nick. I walk her to the door. She turns to me and asks, Can you stay? I don't want to be alone. I nod and follow her inside. We lie together on her bed, not bothering even to remove our shoes. I hold her and let her fall asleep with her head on my chest. Rest does not come for me, however. I stare at the ceiling, fighting the feeling that I'm going to break out into uncontrollable wailing. I remember stories in the Bible of people who tear their clothes in mourning. My grief is so primal, I can imagine shredding my clothes with my teeth and my bare hands and even ripping the flesh from my bones. What I cannot imagine is a greater pain than what I feel right at this moment. 4. Two months after the end of the trial, my boss calls me into his office. His voice fades as I watch his lips move. I know what he is saying without needing to hear the words. I have not met my deadlines. I come in late and leave early if I show up at all. I don't return co-workers' phone calls and emails. They have been patient with me, but it's not working out. There will always be a place for me here, but not now. I couldn't care less. It used to be that I worked so I could make money to spend on Nick, tuck away something for his college fund, save up for a house in a better neighborhood. None of that matters now, so what motivation do I have to work, to live? There's enough money in the bank to last a while. It's amazing how much of my budget was centered around Nick. I watch a lot of TV, news channels and television judge shows mostly. They don't demand my attention and provide a distraction. I haven't shopped for food in weeks. Whenever I get hungry, I just order a pizza and leave a $20 bill taped to the doorframe with a note for him to ring the bell and leave it. I haven't showered in days, and the underwear and robe I wear are rank. Flies buzz around the overflowing garbage can. Unopened mail covers the coffee table. The phone rings. I don't know where it is, and I'm quite frankly amazed that it's warbling at me. I can't remember the last time I bothered to charge it. 
I try to zero in on where the sound is coming from and find it stuck between the layers of a stack of unread newspapers. I maneuver my thumb to silence the call, but then see that the caller ID is Rebecca. I answer. Hi. Hi, she replies, with a coarseness to her voice she gets when she's been crying. Are you all right? I immediately want to take that question back. I know the answer. She's like me. Nothing will be all right ever again. She forgives my careless question and continues. I saw him today. I saw Vitaly at the store. He, he smiled at me like everything was okay. God. Karen was there. She yelled at him to get out. I couldn't say a word. I was paralyzed. I've always liked Karen. He gets to shop. He gets to go to the store and buy beer. He was buying beer. Probably the same beer. Her voice trails off. I'm sorry. That's the only thing I can think of saying. It sounds so hollow. Rebecca ignores my choice of words. She has something else on her mind. I want to kill him, she says. I know. No, she says. I really want to kill him. I want to buy a gun and shoot him. I want him to die. I don't answer. The thought has crossed my mind. How I might be driving along and see him crossing the street or walking to his car in a parking lot, and I'd just drive right over him, back up if I needed to. Will you help me? Yes, I answer without thinking. Will I really? Yes, I will. I think I know where I can get... No, I interrupt. Not on the phone. Meet me at the trail where we used to go running. I glance at the clock. Three? Okay, she answers. The tears are gone from her voice. I hang up. In the bathroom, my reflection shows matted hair and more than a week's worth of beard with bits of pizza in it. Shaving is difficult, but I scrape my face smooth, strip down, and step into a scalding shower. I let the hot water rinse the days of filth from my body before I even attempt to use soap and shampoo. It takes me at least 15 minutes before I feel clean, before I feel like I can go back out into the world. I put on my running clothes and shoes and get in the car. The drive to the running path is short and I'm early, but she's already there. I get out and nod toward the path and we start off at a medium pace. After a while, we're alone. Are you here to talk me out of it? She asks. No, I want to kill him too. But we can't just do it. We have to have a plan. Why? What does it matter? I don't care if I go to jail. I don't care if I die. I just want him dead. It matters because then he takes our lives too. He has to die. He has to pay. But he can't come back to us. Whatever happens to us can't be the consequence of his justice. Do you know what I mean? She looks at me quizzically. I explain. We have to get away with it like he did. His family has to know his killer is out there unpunished. She gets it. How? When? Whenever it happens, we'll be suspects. You think so? We do want him dead, don't we? A couple of young girls pass us. I can hear the music leaking from their iPhone earbuds. We slow down and allow them to disappear ahead of us. We have to assume that everything we say and do will be noticed by someone. We have to live our lives as if we are trying to put the whole thing behind us. Maybe find a support group we can go to. I should try to get my job back. We should get back together, she says. That was on my list, but I was afraid to say it myself. Yes. You can move into my place, she says without an explanation, but I know the reason. Nick's room is untouched in my apartment, a reminder of our loss. We can't hide from Nick. P. 
People will think it's odd if we don't have pictures or something around. She nods, knowing exactly what I mean. I know this will be the hardest part for her. Between the funeral and the trial, whenever someone mentioned Nick or she would see the class photo of him they used in the newspapers, she would have a near breakdown. Okay, she concedes. I think I'm ready for that. But there are tears in the corners of her eyes. We can't write any of this down. Not a post-it, not an email, not a text. And we only talk about it in places where we know we are completely alone. But we do need to lay an electronic trail to back up our cover story. Facebook posts, Google searches, purchases on Amazon. We can get started tonight. Your mom has been trying to get me to go out with her. I should do that, Rebecca says. Good idea. Will you come with me? Of course. We can tell her we're back together. That'll make her happy. Plus, she'll tell everyone she knows. It'll spread faster than Twitter. She catches herself about to laugh, but stops and looks at her watch. We should turn around. Okay. The run back is quiet. We don't talk, and besides, there are too many people around now. I walk her to her car. Thank you for doing this, she says. Will you come over tonight? I hope you move your stuff tomorrow, but I... I want to... Let's go out to dinner. Sushi? She nods. I lean in to kiss her. She is surprised by the gesture, but recovers and responds. She gets that everything we do now has an audience. That we are setting the stage and playing roles that will give us the one thing we couldn't get from the police or the courts. Justice. Actually, more than justice. Revenge. Five. I have a bag packed with some clothes, my laptop, and some things of Nick's I think we should have. When we return from dinner, we turn on Rebecca's computer and start Googling support groups. Surprisingly, there is one not too far away that meets weekly for parents who have lost young children. We print out their flyer and put it on the fridge. It's late. How far are we going to take living together? I'll sleep on the futon, I say. Do you have some extra sheets? You can have the bed, she offers. I'm fine on the futon. It reminds me of the months before the divorce, the nights I spent sleeping on the couch rather than in our bed. I'm sure it reminds her, too, but we have a larger purpose to achieve, and neither one of us wants to dwell on it. Okay. She grabs some sheets, a blanket, and a couple of pillows from a closet as I take my shaving kit and unpack it into our medicine cabinet. As I'm brushing my teeth, she comes into the bathroom and starts her nightly routine. Our eyes meet in the mirror in that way that has the illusion of intimacy. I wonder if the people in the reflection might still be in love. 6. My old boss is eager to accept my proposition to come back as a contractor, especially for the ridiculously low rate I quote him. I tell him about getting back together with Rebecca, and he even offers to have us over to his house for dinner, like in the old days. I promise him we'll do just that. Resuming work is easy now. I know why I'm doing it. It never was a hard job for me. As a system administrator, I mostly just check logs, push buttons, and write reports. Most of it I can automate and spend the rest of my time doing my real work. The way our data center is set up, I am able to create a virtual machine that only I have access to. I set it up with an anonymous proxy and exclude its activity from the firewall policies and logs. Basically, I can surf the web now without anyone knowing what I'm looking at. I also make sure at the same time to generate web activity for legitimate business purposes so as not to raise any suspicions. I tell my boss I need to download some large virtual machine images to evaluate some new tools, and he gives me an approving nod, glad things are back to normal. At first I think poisons are a good way to go, 
but the more exotic and untraceable ones are exotic for a reason. They're hard to obtain and even harder to handle. There's no way I can see to suddenly develop a hobby of raising deep-water octopuses or Amazonian tree frogs. A foray into covert assassination techniques is also fruitless. I neither have the means to acquire the tools necessary nor the resources to hire a professional. Besides, this is something I'm going to do myself. I am going to kill him. I want to watch his life leave his body and make sure he realizes that it is the father of his victim who was taking it from him. Googling takes me down a few more dead ends, but then I come across a site that captures my attention. It's about a mob killer called the Iceman, who, as a hitman, bragged that he never left a target alive. His style was deliberate and decisive. I returned to some research I had done on Vitaly. There's a story about how his father is a major player in the mob. A plan gels in my mind. I'll make it look like a contract killing. Focus anyone who looks at it toward organized crime rather than despondent parents. I shift my queries toward local mob hits, trying to get as many details as I can about the methods they employ. I find a website authored by a local crime writer, Eddie Horn, who has a very comprehensive list of suspected mob-related crimes and the people associated with them. I find Vitaly's father's name on the site and feel confident I'm on the right track. One series of murders catches my interest. There's a hitman who has a very specific modus operandi. He kills with an ice pick. That is something I could do, I think to myself. At home, I take Rebecca out to a sidewalk cafe in our neighborhood and give her the broad strokes of my plan. She is amazing, throwing out amused giggles and comments about the food to obscure the real subject of our conversation for any passers-by. She is excited. I haven't seen her this way since before Nick's death, and I realize I'm excited too. We finish our meal with a boisterous conversation about the weather and how mild the winter was and how early spring is. Nick would have complained about the lack of snow to play in. 7. The meeting starts in a very somber mood. It reminds me of the support groups you see in movies and TV shows, with coffee and cookies on a table in the back and folding chairs arranged in an incomplete asymmetric circle. Most of the people there are couples, but there are a few lone women and a single man, elderly and gaunt, with a sadness that visibly weighs on him. Rebecca and I sit away from everyone else, but the friendly overweight man who appears to be in charge guides us to seats within the main circle. It's nice to see all of you again this week. Staying connected like this is the only way Brian and I have found that allowed us to make it as far as we have for so long. It's ten years for us next month. A moment of silence. I wonder if there is some sort of chip you get, like in Alcoholics Anonymous. She looks to be on the verge of sobbing, but then reaches out for her husband's hand, and he gives it a squeeze. Later, I learn her name is Barb, of Barb and Brian, the Browns. She starts up again with a forced smile that eventually warms into something more natural. I'm sorry. I practiced saying that in a mere thousand times, and I thought I'd be okay. I don't think I would be if it wasn't for this group. Encouraging words are offered from some of those sitting in the circle. Barb acknowledges each of them, then continues. Thank you. I apologize. I feel like I'm stealing all the attention this evening but we have some new faces with us tonight. And as sad as that makes me to know that they have shared the loss each of us have experienced, she pauses, again fighting back tears. She turns to Rebecca and me. We open our hearts to all newcomers. Everyone else turns to face us, except the older man. He seems focused on the craggy veins on his hands. Welcome, Barb offers. She doesn't appear to expect an answer. 
Most people find it takes a while before they're ready to share with the group. We don't require anyone to say anything at all. You're welcome to just listen. But I hope you, like all of us, find our group, she searches for just the right word, comforting. We all have heard our good-hearted friends and family tell us they know how we must feel. Truth is, they really have no idea, do they? Before I felt this way, I couldn't have imagined just how desperately empty a person could be. Nothing hollows you out like the loss of a child, and I don't expect that any of us will feel normal again. Barb shares a familiar look with her groupmates. They've all heard this before, obviously, but I can see in their eyes that their pain is still there, and I don't expect any amount of sharing and commiseration will ever erase it. But that's not why we're here, she says in answer to my unspoken thoughts. We are here because we know that giving up, that checking out, does nothing but tarnish the memories of our children. As long as we can go on, as long as we can bear our burdens and make it through another day, a week, a month, another year, they can go on in our hearts. We owe that to them. I become aware of Rebecca squeezing my arm. I turn and see a tear rolling out of the corner of her eye and realize that salty drops are trailing down my cheeks as well. I understand the mournful looks on the faces around us, and am surprised by how much it affects me. This group is meant to be a cover for our real purpose, killing Vitaly. As driven as I am toward that goal, Barb's words cause me to realize that we are not alone. We do have a sort of tradition, though, Barb continues. Whenever there is someone new in the group, we all share our stories. It's only fair that you know who we are and why we're here. Now Barb's smile becomes genuine, affectionate warm, as she scans the others in the group. She turns toward Rebecca and me. The stories are what helps keep them alive in our hearts, and sometimes, she casts a gently chastising glance toward one of the older couples, we get a little carried away. But I hope you'll allow us this chance for you to get to know us, and allow us to welcome you into our group. Rebecca takes my hand, wraps it in her own, and pulls it into her lap. We both sit back, relieved at the fact that we aren't expected to share our pain tonight, and that we have found a place that understands it, regardless of the means and motive. 8. Barb goes first. I notice that she has a locket around her neck, which she opens to reveal a photo of a teenage girl. She stares at it longingly. Our daughter was the most wonderful girl, an honor student, kind, generous, a true friend to anyone in need. Her one weakness was the boy who lived across the street. They were born only a week apart, so naturally they became playmates. And we became friends with his parents, despite the fact that we really didn't have much in common with them aside from being neighbors. When they were old enough to go to school, they remained friends. And even though as they moved through elementary school and junior high, they had fewer and fewer classes in common, they still walked to school together and spent time with each other. We encouraged her to socialize more with her other friends, even tried to steer her to other boys. But you know how girls are when they're in love. She only saw the good in him, that sweet little boy who protected her on the second-grade playground. He would get into trouble with the police, small things, Halloween antics, curfew violations, spray-painting fences in the alley, and we knew he was one of the kids responsible for the piles of beer cans that littered the park down the street. Probably did drugs, too. But he seemed to insulate her from all that. Maybe he really loved her. Regardless, he couldn't seem to break his ties to the darker part of his life. I'm sure she knew all those things and believed she could fix him. I mean, ladies, haven't we all tried to tame the bad boy? 
She talked him into going to the prom with her, got him to shave and remove most of the piercings on his face. They were so handsome together. I started to believe that maybe she was right about him. Barb turns to Rebecca and me. I'm sure you've guessed that she didn't come home that night. He and some friends had sneaked some liquor into the dance, and they somehow got the limo driver to step out of the car. And then... Barb turns away. Brian guides her to her seat, then stands and finishes the story. They were going too fast on the expressway on-ramp. Hit the guardrails at just the right angle, and the car flipped over and fell to the road below. Somehow, by some cruel twist of fate, some cosmic joke, he and one of his friends survived. Everyone else was killed instantly. Our daughter died because she trusted a scumbag to be a human being. Barb tries to pull Brian back to his seat. He resists. My wife is trying to shut me up. We try not to live in hate. She's much better at it than I am. I'm the one who identified her body. We didn't have an open casket. Barb tugs on Brian's sleeve. Brian, don't. Ten years, Bob. His voice cracks with pain. We would have had grandchildren by now. He focuses on Rebecca and me. We try to pretend if we keep the love for our children alive, that's all we need to do. Then he scans the others in the room. But the truth is, as hard as it is to admit, we need to hate too. Sometimes I think that's really what this group is for, at least for me. And I know a few others here who might not be so willing to admit it to give us a place to let the hate out, so that when we go home and try to live our lives, it won't get in the way of the love. He turns back to Barb. She rises, and they embrace. Everyone gives them a moment. Without any visual or audible cue, the meeting moves on, following an agenda that meets the needs of the moment, the desires of the participants. Thank you for listening to The Dead Kids Club on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniac's Fiction Podcast. If you are enjoying this free presentation, I hope you'll take a moment to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or Audible and sign up for my email list at bedtimestories.studio. Make sure you rate and review on the apps that allow it and share this podcast with anyone you know who enjoys audiobooks. You can also show your support by purchasing this or any of my other books in paperback or ebook editions on Amazon or the complete audiobooks on Audible. And lastly, if you're a fan of paranormal mysteries, I hope you'll also check out the award-winning Rainy Day Investigation book series, co-written with Arnold Rundick and Lloyd Auerbach, at rainyanddae.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. Thanks again, and all the very best.